One morning, with Casper screaming in a sling around Les's neck, Les screamed at me that he was not an endless, bottomless pit in which to dump all my anxieties. He yelled at me that I was overly anxious about Casper's lungs, anxious about his kidneys, I was anxious about every single fucking thing. Everything he said was completely true. I burst into terrible tears. In Melbourne, I quickly found a new maternal and child health nurse to act as my guide and saviour. I had a baby book too. It had quickly grown tattered and dog-eared, like the Bibles of certain lunatics, because, like them, I also looked towards my book for salvation. Like any proselytising lunatic, I would tell you the name of my Bible, Baby Love, Everything You Need to Know About Your New Baby, by Robin Barker. On my very first visit to the new baby nurse, I sought advice about the fistula. Because I know you will want to know, but are too polite to ask, I will tell you that Les and I had already successfully had sex without any ill effects. As far as I could tell, the fistula did not make any appreciable difference. The baby nurse referred me to a good female doctor, who then referred me to one of Melbourne's best female obstetricians and gynaecologists. You've most certainly got a recto-vaginal fistula, dear, pronounced the doctor, and a very poor pelvic floor, which can't be helping the rectal wind. What are the implications of having a fistula? Can't it just be restitched? She sat forward in her chair, scribbling notes on a patient card. There's no real urgency about doing a repair, and I would advise that you leave it until you finish breastfeeding, until your vagina is estrogenized again. You'll get a better repair that way. She stood up and walked me briskly to the door. This is the part where I learnt to hide under the cover of motherhood. In seeking refuge from that which was too awful to contemplate, I discovered one of motherhood's oldest secrets. That infants offer a place to hide, a human skin not your own in which to retreat. Les and I were fighting over money, although I know that actual money is rarely the real issue. Money simply stood for us as a receptacle for all the fury, resentment and frustration that had sprung up between us. Les felt trapped. He intended a different kind of life for himself back in Australia, part-time work, more times to do the things he enjoyed. I would scream that he knew I was a writer when he married me and I had never represented myself as wealthy. What did he want me to do, give up my work, just so he could work part-time? We always ended up shouting at each other, with me feeling that my deepest self was under threat. It was clear that each of us felt stranded in misery. What was at the heart of our pain was the large matter of self-fulfilment versus duty towards others. In essence, each of us wished to know what we could ethically claim for ourselves in this new structure of family we were creating. Casper was still not acquiring the weight expected of him on the baby growth chart. He still cried a lot and still fought at my breast. When he rejected my milk, my arms, my proffered comfort, I understood him to be rejecting my very self. When Casper repulsed me, I felt angrier and more deeply rejected than ever before. Here is what I had to find out for myself. All my life I had believed that if I put enough effort into something, 
then I could achieve a successful outcome. When Casper exploded into my life, I was forced to put aside forever any notions of effort equaling outcome. I had to teach myself to expect nothing, to let whatever situation he and I were in to reach its own conclusion. Casper was my ultimate Zen test. On Casper's 100th day of life, I went to the Queen Elizabeth Centre to have his feeds monitored. He was still not gaining weight, and I was clearly drooping from exhaustion. It was one of those centres with both a day clinic and rooming facilities where exhausted mothers and their sleepless or colicky or breast-refusing babies retreat for rest and advice. At the centre, they let me rest while they tried to put Casper to sleep. I was so strung out, I could not close my eyes. When it came to the test weighing of Casper before and after a feed, I was not surprised to learn that my flaccid breasts had only provided him with less than half the milk a baby of his age required. The midwives advised me to book myself in for the next available room. You need to have a rest and we'll have to work out a way of getting this little fellow to put on weight and learn to sleep properly. I felt as if someone had offered me a fortnight in the Bahamas and couldn't wait to get home and pack. Several days later, Casper and I were ensconced in a tastefully decorated room with our own bathroom and a double bed for visiting fathers. Luxury, said Les, putting on a Monty Python voice. Oh, and before I forget, someone from Picador rang. He handed me a piece of paper with a name and a telephone number on it. It was my publisher, and when I called her, she was anxious to know when I could begin editing the novel I had completed the night I went into labour. Throughout history, male writers and artists in general have had wives and lovers and daughters willing to act as midwives at the birth of art. But most female writers have birthed books alone, having relinquished entirely the idea of giving birth to children. There, in that distressed mother's home, I placed my birthed child on my shoulder while I spoke on the telephone to the woman who was going to edit my novel. My birthed child was squirming, and I found it difficult concentrating on what the editor had to say. That first night, Casper was put in a cot across the hallway from me, and I was told not to bother getting up if he cried. We'll look after him tonight. You just have a good sleep. I showered and put on an unglamorous nightie with buttons down the front so Casper could get to my breasts, and then I went to bed. In the darkness, I closed my eyes and tried to sink into the deliciousness of long-awaited sleep. I had dreamed of sleep while standing with my eyes open, pushing Casper's pram back and forth, back and forth. I had physically yearned for it, as if desiring a lover to come into me. And now, after more than 100 nights of broken dreams, sleep would not come to me. I walked to the nurse's station, where I asked for a sleeping pill which would not pass through breast milk. They all do, but we found these are the best, the nurse said, as she rolled into her hand a small green pill. I swallowed it and went back to my room, and before I knew it, I sank into an exhausted sleep from which I spontaneously awoke at dawn. As I opened my eyes, I heard Casper crying to be fed. Immediately, I felt my breast to find out if they had magically filled with milk in the night. That same morning, Casper tasted milk other than mine. 
I watched him struggling with a training cup, drinking the milk which was recently white powder inside a can, and it looked all wrong. It looked somehow dangerous, an act of insurrection, and I felt the rise of bitter, bitter tears. In a second conversation with the editor, this time with that Casper on my shoulder, I was able to understand more clearly her ideas for editing the novel. Perhaps because I had written Hungry Ghosts in such a white heat, pressed on by Casper's imminent arrival, I recognised that I would have much more rewriting to do on this novel than I had on any other. I had no family at all in Melbourne, no loving nana to mind the baby while I wrote my book, no sister with babies of her own. I hardly knew anyone. I asked the other women in the distressed mother's home if they knew of any reliable but inexpensive nanny service. The mother of a two-year-old laughed. She was a children's clothes designer who was attempting to be both a mother and to do her other job. Welcome to the merry world of childcare, she said, rooting round in her bag for her address book. On New Year's Day 1996, when Casper was about to turn five months old, I began work on the editing of my novel. I sat at the kitchen table, wearing earplugs, while I concentrated on the screen of my laptop, trying to pretend that Casper wasn't behind me, being entertained by Carol on a rug on the floor. Earlier, when I had rung the nanny service, I had been asked whether I wanted a nanny who attended to the baby only or one who could perform light household duties, but who came at a slightly higher rate. Since I was hard pushed remembering to put out the dirty nappies for the nappy service we had recently acquired, having decided that financial hardship was preferable to the work and time put into washing nappies, I opted for the slightly higher rate. Within months... Any money I had already earned in advances was completely gone. It was hard to work at the kitchen table because Casper's warm breath was in easy reach. His skin would be warm if I touched it. It was hard to work because Casper kept getting in the way, poking his human hands and eyes into the fabric of my imagination, jostling the characters caught in its weave. The characters put up a good fight, though, and there were moments when I longed for my son to be taken far, far away. Whenever Carol took him to the shops or for a walk, my old self returned, and I blazed through words like a flame. I had to learn to be fast, for every second counts with a child. I learnt to compose everything in my head, to have whole paragraphs, whole chapters, completely worked out before I even sat down. Much of this book has been written in the same way. I write this book in dreams, in buses, in the quiet moments before I go to sleep, in the ink of my blood. I have learnt to write in air now. As soon as Les got home in the evenings and Carol had left, she was proving to be so gloriously tireless that I had to practically order her to take a break. I took off all my clothes and filled the bath. I tried either to empty my head of thoughts or else drift off into a kind of meditation in which I imagined my breasts to be full of the creamiest milk. I was not sure if New Age affirmations worked, but I was willing to try. Most of the time, my neck was so full of tension that whatever position I was in quickly grew uncomfortable. I felt as if my whole body was being squeezed in a vice, 
My heart felt ready to burst. My head pounded with trapped blood. The harder I tried to sleep, the more my body lay as if flayed upon the bed, skinned of dreams. Les was feeling completely marginalised, squeezed into my life between Casper and the book, a poor third. Just give up the fucking book, he shouted one night, and I shouted back, I would if I could. The terrible truth was that the book drew me. I compulsively craved to perfect it. I longed to write the perfect last line, and I could not have given it up for anything. But Casper also drew me, and I wanted nothing less than to sink forever below the surface and never write another book again. And Les drew me, the shimmering memory of our joined flesh and all our lost happiness that I still felt might be found. I was caught in a bloody crossfire between milk and ink and love and could not have borne any one of them to be vanquished. I felt as if I was being forced to choose, as if my own hand was holding the gun. <laughs> 